Standing on the Platform of Truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Dear Father in Heaven, Father, I thank Thee for this Sabbath day. I thank Thee for a day of rest, a day where we can come apart and have our minds separated from the things that have occupied them throughout the week, that we can think upon Thee and think upon Thy Word, of a day where we can have uninterrupted communion with Thee. And I pray that this, will, this day will be such for us. May we find our rest in Thee, and as we contemplate Thy Word, I pray that Thy Spirit will speak to our hearts, and I pray, Father, that Thou wilt use my lips. Father, I pray that Thou wilt sanctify my lips and my tongue, that I may speak those words that will bring Thee honor and glory, that I may uplift Jesus in all things that are said and done. I pray that this service will be an honor and a glory to Thee, and I ask that Thou will give to each and every one of us ears to hear what Thy Spirit is saying to the Church. For this I ask, in the precious name of thy Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Perhaps we could say discipleship. But more importantly, not only discipling others, but what it means for us personally to be a disciple of Christ. And as I begin, I want us to open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. You know, James chapter 1, verse 5, James admonishes us that if we lack something, we should ask, right? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. There we read, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, what? Get wisdom. Did he stop there? No. He continues by saying, and with all thy getting, get what? Understanding. Understanding. Wisdom is important, isn't it? In fact, it's the principal thing. It's the basis, really, of education. Wisdom. But sometimes we just stop there. We don't get understanding. But more important than wisdom is understanding. God not only wants us to be wise, he wants us to understand what we're reading, what it means to us. And what I'm going to be sharing today, I'm going to take it from just a short passage in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want us to look at it and see if we can understand better the words of Jesus in relation to being disciples of Christ. And our text is going to be Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Matthew chapter 11. These are well-known words of Jesus. Words often quoted. But I want us to take a moment and look at them to see if we can get wisdom And with all our getting, get some understanding as well, as it relates to discipleship. So let us begin in verse 28. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does he promise? Rest. And how do we get that rest? We come to him. Now, who is he bidding? All those that labor and are heavy laden. How many here are laborers and carry a burden? Now, do you think he's specifically referring to physical labor? Could there be a deeper meaning to his words? Are there many of us who are laboring with guilt, laboring with depression, bearing a burden about that Christ wants to give us rest from? 
Come unto me, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And the promise is, I will give you rest. And I want to look for a moment at that word rest. Because when we think of rest, we often think of refreshment, don't we? Kicking back, relaxing. I don't know about you, but when I think of rest, I often think of relaxation, resting from something, sitting down, taking a break, right? But rest has another sense, another meaning. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 10. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the promise that God made to Israel of giving them rest. He would bring them into the land of Canaan, and there he had promised to give them rest. And Paul, taking from this language, begins to speak about that promised rest, how that there remained to the people of God a rest, seeing that when Joshua brought them into the land of Canaan, Had he given them rest at that time, he would not then have spoken of another rest. For it would have been fulfilled, correct? The rest that God promised was not a physical rest. But there was something deeper, something more. Let's notice it in verse 10. Actually, it's back up to verse 9. Excuse me, verse 9. Paul says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Well, what kind of rest does he mean? Verse 10 gives us the answer. For he that is entered into his rest, that is God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. You know, if you go back to the very first instance where rest is mentioned, it's Genesis chapter 2. And God rested from all his works. He did what? He rested. Does that mean God took a break? No. God ceased. They were finished. They were complete. That's what it meant. His work was done. It was complete. It was perfect. And now God rested. He ceased. His work was done, you see. And Paul is here drawing a comparison. He's saying, he that would enter into God's rest must cease from his works, as God did from his. Just as God finished his work and it was done, so God is saying that we must so cease from our own works if we are to enter into the rest of God. If we want to enter into that rest that's promised to the people of God, we need to cease from our own works, from thinking our own thoughts, from speaking our own words, and from doing our own pleasure, especially on God's holy day. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13. We need to understand what it means to rest. And when Jesus was speaking about rest, I believe he was talking about this rest. Come unto me. If you want to know what real rest is, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Jesus alone can give us this kind of rest. Jesus wants to turn our minds in a different direction. He wants to change our mind. And that's what rest is all about. And that's part about what it means of being a disciple of Christ. When we come to him, it's to change our mind. We're not to stay the same. We come to him as we are. But Jesus does not bid us to stay as we are. He wants us to change, to change the way we think, the way we look at things. You know, the world has shaped our mind. It's shaped the way we think. Whether we realize it or not, our education, our upbringing has shaped the way we think to a large degree. And some of us, the world has more, had more influence on that shaping than others. But to every one of us, the world has shaped our way of thinking to some degree. Every one of us needs a change of heart, a change of mind. Every one of us needs this rest. 
And we can only find that rest in Jesus. And that's part of what it means to become a disciple of Christ. And with that, I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 11. After Jesus bids us come to him and promises us rest, he begins to explain in more detail the meaning of this rest. And he speaks of it in language that to us might seem strange or odd. Let's read it. Verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you. And we'll stop there for the moment. Because this is what I want us to focus in on, on this portion. Take my yoke upon you. Now you might think, as probably I did, Jesus had just promised me rest. And now he wants to put his yoke upon me. Doesn't that seem contradictory? And to some of you, it might. I know it did to me at first. How can a yoke be restful? A yoke is an instrument of labor, isn't it? It is. And so it seems on the surface that there's a contradiction. Jesus is promising to take away that burden, to give us rest from labor, but at the same time, he's saying, take my yoke upon you. Jesus is giving us labor. He's giving us work. But in that work, in that labor, we find rest. Jesus' rest. Now, often I know, when we think of a yoke, we think of something kind of like this. Right? Right? I don't know about you, but when I first read, take my yoke upon you, it seemed like Jesus was offering me handcuffs. When we think of a yoke, we think of something that does what? It restricts or restrains, right? It hinders or restricts freedom. Don't handcuffs do that? We're no longer free to act as we would want, right? We're handcuffed. We're restricted. And we think of God's law as restrictive. Restricting freedom. Restricting liberty. But the rest that is promised to us is a removal of that bondage. And giving of liberty. The yoke of Christ is not a galling yoke. It's a yoke of freedom. A yoke of liberty. A yoke is not something that restricts. More importantly, it's something that binds us to something or someone. And that's the, I think, the key importance or key meaning to the word yoke that Jesus is saying. When we take our yoke, his yoke, I should say, upon us, whose yoke is it? Christ's yoke. Who are we yoked up with? Christ. See, we labor together with him. We are bound to him. And that's the sense in which I think we should understand this word. It's the yoke of Christ is that which binds us to him. For what? What does a yoke do? It allows... Someone to guide and direct, right? When you yoke oxen together, you yoke them together so that you can guide and direct their movement. So that the two work as one. And usually, you would, you would yoke together an older, experienced animal with a young, younger, inexperienced animal to train them. I don't know how many of you here have worked with yokes, worked with oxen or horses, but when you yoke up, you don't yoke two inexperienced together. You yoke an inexperienced with an experienced so that they gain that experience of working together. They learn when to pull, 
how to pull. They learn the subtle indications that the person who is, has control of the yoke is guiding and directing. The older experienced animal will recognize the subtle clicks or movement of the, the yoke to indicate which direction to go, how fast they should go, whether they should slow down. All these things the experienced animal knows. And the younger one will follow the lead of the experienced one. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. We are to be yoked up with him. Jesus has experienced all the difficulties, all the trials and perplexities of human existence. And he's overcome them for our sake. And he's bidding us, come, yoke up with me. Learn from me. And so that leads me to the second part of this verse. After Jesus bids us take up that yoke, be bound to him. He wants there to be a union between us. Notice his next language. He says, take my yoke upon you and what? Learn. Learn of me. Do you know what I think of when I think of learn? School. The moment we take the yoke of Christ, we enter the school of Christ. When we are bound to him, we begin to learn from him. He teaches us from his experience. And this is what Jesus means when he calls himself the comforter. It's this sense in which Jesus is the comfort to us. He's passed through all those difficulties. He's overcome every sin, every temptation. And he bids us, come to me. You can learn of me. Learn how to be a victor, an overcomer in life. Jesus wants us to learn of him. And that word of is important. This phrase is important. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase learn of me, it tells me something. How many here are familiar with the English language? I'm assuming all of you are, right? <laughs> How many here are grammarians? I don't see any hands going up. When you say, learn of me, it has a connotation to it. And I'll come to that for a moment. But before I do, I want us to take a, a moment and look at the word learn. The word learn in the original is an interesting word. It's a word we use in English language as well. We have a word that has the same exact root as the Greek word. It's the Greek word manthano. From it, we get two English words. Mind and math. Now you might say, well, where does, how do you get the word mind and math from this? Well, the word math in Old English simply meant to learn. Math is one of the principal things that they teach you in school. It's the, great, the basis or groundwork of most education. Math is help to help us solve problems. That's what math is there for. You have a problem, you use math to solve it. Math is a universal science. You can use it to solve all kinds of problems. Math is a way of learning. Learning to overcome obstacles. Learning to overcome difficulties. Solving problems. That's what math does. And to be a disciple, to learn from Jesus, is to learn to overcome, to solve problems, to overcome difficulties. And in English, we think of just adding numbers. We think of formulas. But the word has much more significance to it than that. And the word mind, too. Have you ever thought of the word mind? We think of just that gray matter, perhaps, between our ears when we think of mind. But have you ever had your parents say to you, I want you to mind me? What do you mean? What do they mean? Obey. Obey. 
more correctly, learn. Learn. I want you to learn. By doing, you learn. By following an example, you learn. By doing what the Lord says, you learn. You gain the experience. By taking that yoke of Christ upon you, you learn of Him. You mind Him. You obey Him. And in that process is learning. You gain the mind of Christ. And this is part of the significance of that word. It's tied. In fact, it's derived from the same root as the word disciple. When you say learn of, what we're talking about is indirect knowledge. I can learn of Abraham Lincoln. I can learn of Napoleon Bonaparte. I can learn of God. I can read my Bible. I can open it and I can learn of God. Learn of in English is typically an indirect knowledge. We learn of things. We can learn of the theory of relativity. But that's different than knowing it, right? That's not an intimate knowledge. It's more in the sense of an acquaintance to learn of something. And this is one area I think that this translation could be improved. Because the actual preposition would be better translated, learn from. Now, if I say learn from, I'm talking about direct, aren't I? If Jesus was saying, learn from me, it has a different connotation, doesn't it? It's saying, come, follow me, watch my example, learn from me. It's not saying just gain a theoretical knowledge of me. He's not saying just learn about me, as we typically would say learn of something. Jesus is saying learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. Come, follow me. Learn from my example. And so learn from, I think, correctly gives us the idea, sense in which Jesus is speaking. He didn't want them to gain just an indirect association with him a theoretical knowledge about him. Jesus wants us to know him personally. He wants us to gain the experience that he has to offer us. Part of gaining the mind of Christ, that hope of glory, which is Christ in you. This is how we get Christ in us, is by following him, by taking that yoke, learning from him, as we read the Word of God, as we learned in our Sabbath school lesson, we were going over the story of the Samaritan woman, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Why do we have these instances recorded in the Word of God? All these conversations, Old Testament and New Testament. You have Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You have Jesus and Nicodemus. Why are they recorded? So that we can learn from him that we can examine how Jesus conducted himself, how he behaved, how he spoke. He wants us to learn from these things. The Bible is not just a book of good morals or a book of good stories. It is our textbook. It's the book that we are to learn from. All these things were inspired by Jesus. They're his words, and they're for us to learn from. But most importantly all of all, we have the Gospels, which give to us Jesus' experience as a man, his victories that he gained, his conversations, his interactions with other human beings, that we could learn from him what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature, what it means to have the mind of God. These things are left on record for us, for our learning. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. 
Jesus had promised freedom, right? And in that freedom was to be the yoke. In John chapter 8, Jesus speaks of the same freedom. Verse 31, he speaks to those who believed on him. How many here believe on Jesus? I hope to see every hand or go up. Hopefully every hand. These words then apply to you. Jesus spake these words to those that believed on him. And not only some or those that believed on him, but who? Who that believed on him? I heard it. Jews. That's right. Now, these were not just any believers, right? These were Jews. Jesus is speaking to Jews. Those who in his time had the scriptures, should have known the words, should have been familiar with the teachings of the word of God. Jesus spake these words to them. Notice them. If ye continue in my word, then are ye what? My disciples indeed. That word disciple, we'll look at it in just a moment. We'll see its significance. I told you that it was connected to the word learn. How are we to be Jesus' disciples according to his word? To continue where? In his word. Now, there are two things I want to point out in this. What we are to continue in. What are we to continue in? In whose word? In my word? In my interpretation of the word? In my explanation of the word? No. We're to continue in Jesus' word. His word alone. And secondly, we're to continue not just sporadically, but the word continue speaks of something that is ongoing, without end. Jesus says, if, now notice, when you start something with if, you're talking about a condition. You're making a conditional statement. He said, you will be my disciple indeed if you continue in my word. It's not enough to read it once in a while. It's not enough to spend a few moments once a week, to go to church once a week and hear it once a week. Jesus said, you have to continue in my word. And that word continue could also be translated remain. In fact, our English word remain comes from the root of this word continue. They have the same meaning. When you remain at something, you continue in it until what? It's finished, right? That's the object. We are to continue in Christ's word until that word has done its work in us. Until the image of Christ is perfectly reproduced in us. Christ wants his word to do its perfect work. You know, Jesus spoke in the Old Testament. He said, the word that goes forth from me shall not return unto me unfulfilled but it will accomplish the thing whereunto I sent it. God's word does not return unto him vain. When Jesus speaks a word, that word accomplishes its work. And it will accomplish its work in you, if you will allow it to abide in you, and if you will continue in it. Verse 32. Not only will be his will we be his disciples, but we shall know the truth. If we continue in his word, we shall know the truth, and the truth will make us free. You see, the true freedom is freedom from that most galling of bondage, which is sin. The deceptions in the world. We become a slave to our lusts a slave to the customs and traditions of the world. We don't think ourselves slaves, but in reality we are. We open that bottle of liquor and we begin to drink, we become a slave to it. We light that tobacco, 
We become a slave to it. We think we can quit when we want. We think we're free, but in reality, we're a slave. We think we can put away those foods that we so love. We think we can put away this way of dressing. We think we can put away this music. We think we can put away this television programming. But time and time will show that we are a slave to these things. And Jesus promises that if we continue in his word, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free from those things. It will give us freedom. It will cut that yoke of the world that is upon us. The Lord wants us to be free, but freedom comes in knowing him. Freedom comes in knowing his word. Not just knowing about it, not just hearing it, but knowing it. As I began, getting wisdom, and with all our getting, getting understanding. That's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to understand his word, because it's in that understanding that we are made free, that that yoke of bondage is cut from off our neck, removed from us, that that burden of guilt that we bear, because we know that what we're doing is wrong, Jesus wants to take that burden from us. He wants to give us freedom. But we can only get that freedom if we come to him. If we will abide in his word and allow that word to do its perfect work in us. So that brings me to the word disciple. I told you that Jesus says that if we continue in his word, we shall be what? His disciples, indeed. Now, I told you today I was going to talk about discipleship. And I am. The word disciple comes from the same root. It's actually where we get the word math from. It's a Greek word, mathetes. And it literally means a learner, a pupil, or a student. Who goes to school? Students. Students. Why? Not so they can join the social club. Not so they can hang out with their friends. Right? We go to school for the very same reason we should go to church. To learn. And learn from whom? From Christ. Jesus bids us take his yoke upon us and learn from me. We are to enter the school of Christ, become a disciple indeed. And we saw how we become disciples, by continuing his word. That makes us a disciple. Who were the disciples of Jesus? Those that remained in his word. Those that continued with him. Those that were bound to him. They were learning from him. And Jesus bids us do the same. Now let me close. In verse 30, going back to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, For my yoke is easy, and his burden is light. The yoke of Christ is easy. The burden of Christ is easy. Now you may ask, How is any yoke and burden easy? How many here are married? You know, you're slaves, right? You've been bound with a yoke. Now, how many of you believe that that yoke is galling? How many here are going to say their marriage is galling? Is it easy? If you love, it is, isn't it? If you love that person, the yoke is easy. The burden is light. Service is not a hard thing to someone you love. And that's why we marry, because we love. That's why we come to Christ, because we've experienced his love for us. We love him because he first loved us. We see the love that Christ has shown to us. 
the manifestation of God's love has been revealed and our heart is broken and we come to Him in love. And He places that yoke upon us. And you know what? That yoke is easy and the burden is light as long as love remains in the heart. The burden will be easy and the burden will be light. The only time the burden of Christianity becomes a burden and becomes hard is when love dwindles in the heart. When love for Christ begins to fade, when he's no longer the object of our affection. And you know that's the same in a marriage, isn't it? A marriage becomes difficult when we begin that love begins to fade. When they are no longer the object of our affection, right? Then it becomes difficult, doesn't it? Now we're having to work at it. But what we really need to do is ask for the Lord to rekindle that love in the heart. Keep your finger there and turn with me to the book of Revelation. I want us to look at some words that Jesus said. It's in his letter to the seven churches. So actually the letter to the first church, Ephesus. Now Jesus has much good to say about this church. But in verse 4, he has one thing against them. And what is it? He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. That word left in the original expresses the idea of putting away. It's a synonym to divorce. Their love has gone cold, and they're beginning to divorce their love. They were thinking about it. They put them away. They put that love away. Now, were they physically divorced? No, but their mind was going that direction. Their mind was no longer there. They had left that first love. And that's where divorce begins, in the mind. When that love wanes, when the affection is gone, then when you begin to think in this way, and Jesus says, this I have against thee, thou hast left thy first love. And to many of us, Christianity might seem like a galling yoke. We have to do all this, we have to keep all these commandments, be good all the time. But you know, that yoke is easy, and that burden is light. If you love the Lord, if you love God, if you will allow Him to show you that love, if you will say like Moses, Lord, show me thy glory, God will honor that request. We say, Lord, help me to understand your love. God will honor that request. God will reveal His love to you, and He will kindle that love in your heart. And that yoke will become easy. That burden will become light. The Lord will carry it for you. He is your yoke partner. Remember, he's yoked with you. The Lord will take not all of it, but he will take the majority of that load and only allow you to carry that which you can handle. That's why he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I want to read a few thoughts to you. This is taken from the book, The Desire of Ages. I want to leave you with these words. The author says, There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world standard. How many here have ever been there? I should see every hand going up. Every one of us has struggled to be like the Joneses, to meet the world standards, to live according to their way. We see them living this way, and we envy that, we want that, and we struggle to maintain it, to put on that good show, and it's a burden. It's a yoke. It carries with it its guilt, its sin. 
It's depravity. And there are many, she says, whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world's standard. They're looking to the wrong flag. They're looking to the wrong standard. They need to look a little higher. She continues, they have chosen its service, accepted its perplexities, adopted its customs. Thus their character is marred and their life made a weariness. In order to gratify ambition and worldly desires, they wound the conscience, such as a slave would do. In order to escape the lash, escape the whip, he defiles his conscience. And he does it time and time again. Their character is marred and their life made a weariness. In order to gratify ambition and worldly desires, they wound the conscience and bring upon themselves an additional burden of remorse or guilt. The continual worry is wearing out the life forces. Our Lord desires them to lay aside this yoke of bondage. He invites them to accept his yoke. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn of me, says Jesus, for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest. We are to enter the school of Christ and learn from him meekness and lowliness. What are we to learn from him? Meekness and loneliness. You know, the world exalts ambition and pride. Heaven exalts service and loneliness. Jesus said to his disciples while they were squabbling about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, he said, you know how the Gentiles exercise authority over one another? This is the way the world runs. But he says, it shall not be so among you. But he who would be the greatest among you, let him be his servant. And he who would be great, let him be a minister. Now, the word minister means to serve. And the reason he gives for this, as many of us might say, well, that's kind of an unfair request. But Jesus says, for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to serve, but to be served. Or excuse me, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus gives his own example as the reason for this. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He who serves. He who understands what the yoke of Christ means. That's greatness in the eyes of heaven. Lowliness. Meekness. Now, we often think of meekness as humility, right? I don't know about you, but when I grew up, when somebody said meek, I thought humble. But meek actually comes from the word small. It means little, little in one's own eyes. It's close to lowly, but it has another connotation. You know, Moses was called the meekest of men. Do you know why? He was patient, that's right. He was not easily provoked. If you look up meek, one of its definitions is not easily provoked. Moses was not easily provoked. He was the meekest of men. He had to be to endure all that provocation for 40 years. Complaining, bickering, moaning, threatening, murmuring all the time, day in and day out. For 40 years, Moses had to be meek. He could not have a temper that was easily provoked. You see, meekness is close to love. If you love someone, you're not going to be easily provoked against them, are you? No. You'll be long-suffering. And this is meekness. This is the way of heaven. And it's the way of service. We are to enter the school of Christ and learn from him meekness and loneliness. Just the opposite of what the world teaches is what is taught in the school of Christ. The Lord wants us to understand that we are, are deserts, are, are Arabians in a desert, right? He wants us to see our need, that 
We have a need. The author continues. Redemption is that process by which the soul is trained for heaven. Have you ever thought of redemption as training? School? We think of it as a gift, right? Here, here's your redemption. But it's actually training. It doesn't come without effort. It doesn't come without labor. It doesn't come without that yoke, beloved. Redemption is that process by which we are trained, prepared, made fit for heaven. That's the school of Christ. This training, she says, means a knowledge of Christ. It means emancipation or freedom from ideas, habits, and practices that have been gained in the school of the Prince of Darkness. The soul must be delivered from all that is opposed to loyalty to God. Do you know what another word for loyal or loyalist is? Not quite close. The word loyalist is actually the French for the Latin we would call legalist. They have the same meaning. One has a bad connotation, the other good. See, we call someone who's loyal a good person, right? But legalist is the same. It has the same meaning. A legalist is someone who is loyal to God, loyal to his law. It comes from the root for law. God wants those to be, he wants us to be loyal to him. And in order to do that, we have to be expatriated. We have to be cut off from loyalty to this world. We cannot be loyal to its customs and loyal to God. We can't serve mammon. We can't serve the world and God at the same time. We're either a friend of this world and an enemy of God, or we are an enemy of this world and a friend of God. If we will be loyal to God, the world will count us an enemy. But if we will be loyal to the world, God will count us an enemy. The soul must be delivered from all that is opposed to loyalty to God. And this is what the school of Christ is to give us. This is what the yoke of Christ means. Emancipation from those things that have brought on guilt and remorse and sorrow in our life. God wants to give us freedom from these things. He wants to give us peace of mind and comfort. But it only comes when we come to Jesus when we take his yoke upon us and when we learn from him. I want us today to take that yoke upon us. My prayer for you and for me is that we will not count it a burden, that we will count that cost, that we will weigh the burden of guilt that we now have with the peace that Jesus is offering and make that decision. Will it, is it worth it? Ask that the Lord will give you a taste. Ask that the Lord will give you a taste of what heaven is like, a taste of what his peace means. You know, I can have the most delicious, nutritious dish of food. And I can tell you how wonderful it is, how delicious it is, how satisfying it is. But you won't know, and you won't really believe until you taste it for yourself. And God wants to give you a taste. God wants you to know what it means. And if you ask that prayer in sincerity, if you ask the Lord to give you a taste of heaven, give you a taste of his yoke, of what true freedom is, the Lord will answer that prayer. That prayer will not go neither unheard nor unanswered. 
But God will give you a taste of these things. So much so that you'll go back for more. I guarantee it. Is it your prayer? Is it your desire to ask for that taste? Do you want a taste of heaven? A taste of, of that peace? A taste of Christ's yoke today? Shall we pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, Father, I bless thee and thank thee for thy love, the love that thou hast bestowed upon us, that we might be called the sons of God. Father, we do not yet understand the greatness of that. We do not yet behold the wonder that we should be called thy sons and daughters. But I pray that we might get a glimpse of that greatness, that we might wonder at it, And Father, I pray that each of us might get a taste of heaven today. There may be some here who are burdened and wearied with a load of care, anxiety, guilt or remorse, sorrow or perplexity, and who are longing for something better, longing for relief, longing for peace. Father, I pray that thou will give to these souls a taste of the peace of heaven, a taste of that yoke, that they might know for themselves what heaven is about and what thy freedom and thy peace is. Father, bless us today. May thy word enter our hearts and bring light to us and peace and joy. I pray, Father, that thou will bless the reading of thy word, that it will not return unto thee void, but that thy word will accomplish a good work in each and every one of us today. I pray, Father, that we might come to Jesus and find that freedom and that rest today. I bless thee and thank thee. And Father, I ask all of these things in the blessed name of thy Son, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth. 